13 through 31. You know, when uh, I was in college, right in the middle of Marshall University, there was a building called the Christian Center. Kind of an interesting title for it because it was anything but Christian. And to give you a flavor for it, my brother, kind of out of curiosity, decided that he would go into the Christian Center, and I'll use air quotes for that, and ask them how he could know God. So the head of the Christian Center comes out, and on his door are a lot of initials behind his name, so obviously he had an education. And he sits down in this director's office, and the director, you know, the, the bearded type with the pipe and all of that, scratches his brow a little bit and looks across the table at my brother and says, well, tell me a little about yourself so we can decide what religion is right for you. And apparently, after all of his education, he had come to the conclusion that there are a lot of different paths to the top of the mountain and it doesn't matter which one you take. Unfortunately, or really, I believe fortunately, the scripture tells us something quite different. Unfortunate for him, fortunate for those who follow the Scripture. The Scripture tells us that God is the Creator and that He determines how one comes into eternal life with Him, not man. Man can weigh in with a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas, and they can come up with all kinds of conflicting accounts about how a person has a relationship with God. But really, when you boil it all down, only God's take on it really counts. Man can never set terms with God about how he will know God because God is the creator, because God is sovereign. God set those, sets those terms, and he reveals to us what those terms are. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31, we're going to see Jesus explain to us how we can have eternal life. And what Jesus is going to do through the course of this text is answer some basic questions. First of all, he's going to answer the question, how does God say that we have the possibility, the hope, even the promise of eternal life? How can we know that we have eternal life according to God? Second question, how do most people think we inherit eternal life? There are a lot of people that make wrong assumptions, and we're going to see that this morning, and we're going to see that God addresses these mistaken opinions straight on, flat out. And then the third, how difficult is it for someone who is self-sufficient to enter the kingdom of heaven? Those are the three questions that Jesus answers for us in the text that we're looking into this morning. But before we get into the text, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at this text, we see important truths revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ. These are truths that we must come to terms with. Father, if one does not know you, they must see from the revelation given here by Jesus Christ how they can come to know you, Father, through your provision of the Son. And then, Father, for those who have made a profession of faith, Lord, I pray that they will evaluate their values, their thought processes, how they view what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And may we be challenged, Lord, to be true followers, not those who give lip service to following you, but those who stand in commitment, yielded to you, ready to do what you ask us to do. Give us the grace, Lord, to grasp these concepts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do we approach a holy God? That's what we're going to be considering this morning. And as we look into this text, what we want to find first is this. 
What really counts is how God says we receive the kingdom of God. What man says, as we saw a moment ago, really doesn't matter. It doesn't count. God is the one who determines this. So we must look to what God says revealed right here in this text. And what we want to see first as we consider what God says about it is how very often we as those who are followers of God can treat those who want to find out about God. Sometimes we can actually be a hindrance to those who are seeking. And what we find revealed first in verses 13 through 16 is this fact that hindering the least and approaching God displeases him. Look at the setting that we find here in this text. It says people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. What we find are people who have a spiritual interest in Jesus Christ. And what they were doing was something that was very Eastern. You know what they were doing? They were bringing their children to Jesus for blessing. You know, when I was in India, we went to various churches, and at the close of the service, very often people would bring their children and want the pastor or the person who was speaking to lay hands on their child and pray for blessing for them. And it was a great privilege to have parents come and bring their little ones so that we could pray over them. And it was something that they were expressing a spiritual interest in. It was something that they were drawn to the leadership for. Many of them weren't even followers of Jesus Christ. And it was a way for the church to touch them and to bring them into a relationship with Jesus by reaching out to them in this way. So that's what they did. It was a very Eastern thing, a very traditional thing, but it opened the door so that people could really know who Jesus is. And I get the sense that that's what's going on here. Here are these people doing something that's a very Eastern thing, bringing their kids for blessing. And what did the disciples do? The disciples looked at the parents and the little children and said, he's too busy. Go away. You're bothering us. We don't have time for this kind of thing. Go somewhere else and get someone else to bless your children because, frankly, you can't do it here. That's what Jesus' disciples were doing, sending people away. And, you know, we need to understand that we should take opportunities that God gives to us to reach out to other people. In the Jewish society, the children were often viewed as unimportant, non-contributing members of society. They were important to their parents. Parents loved them, just like parents today. But for many of the religious leaders, they didn't have any value until they could come to a place to where they could be a contributing part of the community. And that was unfortunate. And Jesus looked at that tradition, and Jesus rejected it. Notice Jesus' response that's revealed in the 14th verse. After the disciples rebuked them, Jesus saw this, and notice it says, he was indignant. Jesus looked at this and just found it offensive. We should never look at people and say, you have no value. You don't fit into our program. You don't fit into our demographic. You're not somebody that we're really looking to reach out to. We shouldn't do that. The disciples tried it. Jesus said, no. You welcome them with open arms. And Jesus wanted to impress upon the disciples the importance of people. People are made in the image of God, whether they're little children or adults. They have value to God. And we should value people in the same way. Now, while in our culture it would be less likely that we would treat a child that way, how would we treat a homeless person who might walk into our church? How would we treat a person that's maybe just a little different than us who walks into our church? Would we hinder them from coming back? Would we hinder them from discovering Jesus? Do we look and say, what's the easy course in reaching a person? We want the people that are just easy to reach. We don't want the problem people. Please keep them away. We need to be careful to understand that sometimes it requires a little extra effort to reach someone. Sometimes it requires us moving outside our comfort zone to reach someone. But what would God have us do? God would have us reach those who come to us, 
just as he challenged his disciples to do the same. But there's more at stake in this text than just how they were treating children. Jesus gives a very important lesson as we continue in the text. And what he begins to share with us is that heavenly access requires coming as a child. Look at the 15th verse. And as we come to that 15th verse, what do we see? It says, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said, you must receive the kingdom like a little child? There are some people who will take this and they sort of refer to idealized attributes of children. Children are so honest. They're so open. They're ready to just reach out to anybody. And they'll say that this is the way that we should be like a child. Well, I would like to know what children they've been hanging around <laughs> if they have those views of children. Children can often be selfish. A child can be sort of self-centered. A child can be less than honest. Did you take those cookies and they have crumbs all over their face? Oh, no, no, it wasn't me. I think Jesus is talking about something else. And you know what I think he's talking about? This. A child brings nothing to the family in the way of contribution as far as monetary, as far as energy and, and life. They, they, they take from us and draw from us, but they bring nothing to it. If, if you looked at it, you would say that a child does not contribute to the family in the way that an adult does. Now, we love them. We draw tremendous love back from them. It's enriching to have them into our lives. But when we look at it, they don't earn a place in the family. They are given a place in the family because we choose to because we love them. And so what Jesus, I think, is talking about when he says come as a child is you understand that you bring nothing into the relationship that we have with God. God gives us a relationship with him freely. God gives us a relationship with him, not on the basis of what we do or what we bring to the table. God gives us a relationship with him because he chooses to love us and we respond to his love. We agree to enter into that relationship with God because when he offers it, we receive it freely. What happens when you give something to a child? The child says, yeah, bring it, <laughs> you know. If you're offering it, I'm taking it. They don't look at it. They don't question. They're there to receive what you give them, and they're happy to do so. Offer something to an adult. All right, what's the catch? Come on, bring me the rest of the story. Tell me what I have to do with this, and then maybe I'll do it, but you don't get something for nothing. That's the attitude of an adult. Jesus is saying if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, we will be like that child. We will trust when that is offered. We will receive it freely. We recognize that we bring nothing to the table, that it's offered, we receive it, and we're thankful. That's what God wants us to be like in entering the kingdom. And I believe that Jesus is saying that because we're going to contrast the way children are with the way a young man is when he comes to Jesus, mentioned in verses 17 and following. They're a complete contrast. God wants us to come to him as little children, trusting, ready to receive what he offers, understanding that we add nothing to what God gives. We are recipients of his grace, and that's it, and we're thankful for it. Look at what happens after Jesus makes the statement about children entering the kingdom of God. In verse 16, it says, he took the children in his arms, he put his hands on them, and he blessed them. You know, something else that was a common thought during the time of the disciples was the idea, again, that, that children don't have that much value in the community apart from the value they have to their parents. Jesus valued those kids intensely. He loved them enough to reach out to them and embrace them and bless them. He took a special interest in the children. You know, for many of us, we found Christ when we were children. For me, 
I was about six years old. Somebody explained how I could know Jesus Christ. I responded, and I'll tell you, I thank God for the children's ministries of my church that gave me the information I needed to trust Christ as my personal Savior. Many in our church have found Christ as children, and I'm thankful for Sunday school and Awana and the many ministries that take place to reach out to children. We should value them, and we should see that many are ready to receive Christ at an early age. And you know what's wonderful about that? They miss out on a lot of bad stuff when they receive Christ young. What a blessing. What an opportunity. Jesus blessed these children as they came to him. I don't think that we should look at a child who expresses spiritual interest and say to that child, you're too young. You don't understand. You're not able to receive the gospel. You're too young. We should be excited when a child expresses spiritual interest, and we should nurture that and encourage it. The disciples were hindering it. God wants us to nurture it. But then we go on. And as we come to the next part of the passage, we see another question that we're going to address. How do most people think they'll inherit eternal life? We come to the story of a rich young man. As we come to the next part of the passage, verse 17. And when we come to the 17th verse, we find that many hope to earn eternal life on the basis of their deeds. Look as the story begins in verse 17. It says, Jesus started on his way, and a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, when we look at this text, we find a man who is desperate to know the answer to a question. He's running up to Jesus. So it demonstrates a sense of urgency. The man had a desire to find an answer to a burning question about how he could know that he had eternal life. And you know, when you really understand the importance of life eternal, when you really understand the crucial importance of grasping the knowledge that I can know that I have eternal life, you'll find it something that's urgent as well. This man did, and, and look at what he did. He ran up to Jesus and he fell on his knees. Now, falling on his knees demonstrates some degree of humility. It recognizes that he sees Jesus as superior to him, and it also demonstrates to a degree that the man was willing to open his heart, to listen to what Jesus had to share. So this man demonstrates sincerity, he demonstrates urgency, and he demonstrates tremendous respect. Look at how he addresses Jesus. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When he recognizes Jesus as a good teacher, this is something that's unusual. In the Jewish community, it was unusual to call anyone good but God. So this is a statement of respect that this man has. He's seeing Jesus as more than just a traveling teacher who's wandering about and saying good things, important things. He's recognizing that Jesus is something else, someone even greater than your average rabbi who was around. So again, demonstrating tremendous respect. But then we come to the question. And look at the last part of that 17th verse and look at the question that he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there are some assumptions in this question. Have you ever noticed when someone asks you a question, very often that question is laden with assumptions. This question is rather leading because it too is laden with assumptions. And let's look at some of these assumptions. First of all, he says, what must I do? What's the assumption? The assumption is this. I go to heaven by what I do. Now, that had been ingrained in his teaching from youth. Many had co-opted the Jewish faith 
and had turned it into a faith that states, you must earn God's favor by observing the law. So having been taught that all of his life, this young man had bought in to that. He had come to the place to where he believed that it's what I do that earns me a place in heaven, that gives me eternal life. But then he says something else that's very interesting in this passage and very telling. Notice how you get eternal life. What must I do? And look at the next word that follows. To inherit eternal life. Now, this shows another assumption. The man was saying basically this. I receive eternal life because it's my birthright. I was born into Judaism. And as a person who is of the chosen of God... I can expect salvation by virtue of being a Jew. I was born into the family of God, so naturally I have a place. Now, we look at that assumption and we say, well, how could anybody believe that? But let me tell you, as a pastor for over 30 years, I've met many Christians who have the same idea. I'm born into a Christian home, so naturally I'm a Christian. I live in what used to be, at least, a Christian nation. So, therefore, I'm a Christian. They make assumptions on the basis of relationships, but they've never come into the most important relationship of all, and that's a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They know all about it. They may have even uttered a prayer that they were told to utter that had no meaning for them. But by their lives, they demonstrate no interest in God whatsoever other than their connections culturally to God. They believe that they've inherited eternal life, but they've never made a personal commitment themselves. This man was very much in that same vein. Someone who knew about God, knew an awful lot about God. Someone who was listening to the latest teachings. Somebody that was in the spiritual loop of his day. But someone who had no clue what it was to have that personal relationship through Jesus. But then we go on in the text. After... The man asks this question. We come to verse 18. And when we come to verse 18, we find that this man had some things that he was holding on to very tightly that he was not willing to let go of. Notice Jesus addresses a question to this man, first by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. First, Jesus deals with some of the man's theology. And he's sharing with the man, you need to make a decision about who I am. If you call me good, why did you call me good? God alone is good. So he's asking the man to make a decision. Am I more than just a man? Am I God? Are you going to respond to me as just a good teacher? Or are you going to respond to me as one who is God? He wanted the man to make a decision about that. But then... Jesus goes on in the 19th verse, and he starts to attack one of the assumptions that the young man made. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, what's interesting about these commandments that Jesus lists, they're all from the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. First tablet's all about God. Second tablet's all about people. And when Jesus mentions these commandments, really this is, do you treat other people in a godly manner as God reveals that you should? So he's probing this young man, and I believe that he's identifying for this young man an area where he fell short. Nobody can keep the Ten Commandments with perfection. They're a measurement of our sin. They demonstrate our need. 
But this young man doesn't understand this. So look at the 20th verse. In the 20th verse, the young man says, Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Although he came humbly, he had an inflated understanding of his ability to keep the law. Nobody keeps the commandments with perfection, and yet here is this young man saying, I've done it, I've kept them all of my life. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 21. In response to this young man's claim that he had kept them all of his life, Jesus looked at him and loved him. You know, I, I love the first part of that 21st verse. Here's a young man that's completely wrong in his assessment of himself, completely wrong in the assumptions that he makes about how someone has a relationship with God the Father. And yet, here is Jesus looking upon him with unconditional love. You know what that says to me? We have to love the lost. As believers, are we willing to love those who have not found Jesus Christ? If we're not careful, we can lose that love for the lost that we ought to have. We start to look at them and find reasons to hate them. He's a liberal. He's a Muslim. He's an atheist. And we label people and it becomes easier and easier to reject them and to hate them. They don't hold to the same views that I hold to, so I've got nothing to do with them. I don't like them, and I don't love them. Not so with Jesus. Jesus looked with compassion on this young man, loving him, even when this young man was wrong. And look at what Jesus says in love. Verse 21, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, when Jesus makes this statement, it's shocking. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. We learn later in Mark's account that this was a very wealthy young man. So for Jesus to say, go sell everything you have and give to the poor... What was he saying? First of all, let me say this. This statement is not directed to all believers for all time. It's not saying that every believer everywhere should sell everything that they have and give to the poor and live a monastic life in some monastery. Not what Jesus is saying. It's a specific need that the specific person had, and here's his problem. He had elevated his wealth to a place that it had become too important to him, more important than people, and as we'll see, more important than his relationship with God. He wanted to hold it tightly. So what Jesus did was take the principles that were expressed in the laws that he cited, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, all of those talking about how we practically love those around us. And what he wanted to demonstrate to this young man is you haven't really loved those around you. You isolate yourself from them. Jesus said this in the book of Matthew, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This young man was erring in both areas. Rejecting God and rejecting people. So that's why Jesus said to him, sell everything. Understand the place that those possessions hold in your life, that that is your God, that that is the most important thing to you, even more important than eternal life. And once you come to that realization, 
then you can turn to me and have a relationship with me. That's what Jesus wanted this young man to understand. Look at verse 22. When we come to the 22nd verse, we find what I think is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. It says this, At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. The young man recognized a need. He had come to Jesus and said, I want eternal life. The young man had a spiritual interest. But the young man also had a God that he had established in his life, wealth, that had become so important to him, he would not let it go. And while he had great regret, look at the verse, he turned away, his face fell, and he went away very sad. He had regret that this was so important to him, but he was lacking another important R word, and that was repentance. He needed to turn from having those things as the priorities in his life and turn to God. And you know there's an important distinction between regret and repentance. As a pastor, I have talked with people about the gospel, and I've heard them lament the sin that they hold on to and say that they really need to change, they really need to turn over a new leaf, but that they're unwilling to do it at this time. You wish you had a spiritual sledgehammer that you could just smack them in the head, knock some sense into them, and, and just push them over that little edge that they have, but they won't. They're hanging on by their fingernails to whatever it is, and it doesn't just have to be wealth, by the way. It could be a relationship. It could be a sin. It could be anything that causes us to hold on to that and to turn away from God and reject Him. And that's what this young man was doing, and he regretted, but he would not repent. And you know, Although it doesn't mention how Jesus responded, I sense that Jesus had great sorrow as well as he saw this young man turn away, refusing to give those things up for something far better, which brings us to the last point of our passage this morning. This young man had become self-sufficient. He was dependent on his works, and he was dependent on his wealth. And as a result, there was no room in his life for God. So the concluding thoughts that we find in this text are thoughts that center on the idea of how difficult it is for the self-sufficient to enter the kingdom of God. Look at the 23rd verse. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. You know why? Again, in the Jewish culture, the idea was the rich were blessed of God. And so they were more spiritual than the poor because God had just given them such wealth so abundantly that they were the spiritual ones. They were the ones that had it together. So when Jesus dispels that idea by saying how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, that was a shock to them. They were looking at that and saying, how can that be? I've always thought that the wealthy had it all in, that they were the ones that, that were more in God's camp than anyone else. And now Jesus is saying this. So look and what Jesus did, he had to reiterate it. Verse 24, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus was driving it home, but what I find interesting is he mentions children in this passage and addresses them as children. Now, what had Jesus just done in verses 13 
through 16, talked about coming with childlike faith. So as he's talking to his disciples, what he's saying is, you've entered because of childlike faith. Not because of wealth, not because of position, not because of your inheritance, but because of your faith. But then he goes on to talk about those who won't come as children. And he says this in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now what Jesus says here is something that is amazing. I've heard this watered down. How many of you have heard, and you can raise your hands in a moment, that this is a referring to a gate in Jerusalem and that it was called the eye of a needle and the camel had to go down on its knees in order to go through this little gate and that's how we resolve this. Let me say this, wrong. You know when that interpretation came about? About 900 A.D. Nobody in the first century understood it that way. You don't find the interpretation until 900 years after Mark wrote this. You know what Jesus was really talking about? A camel, the biggest animal in the area, and a needle, the smallest opening in the area. So what Jesus is doing is he's using an image that they would purely understand that it is almost impossible, not even almost, it is impossible for a person who holds on to their wealth and holds on to their sin and refuses to change to come into the kingdom of God. That's what he wanted his disciples to understand. But then look at verse 26. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, whom then can be saved? Now, this once again also kind of dispels the idea of the eye of the needle being the gate there in Jerusalem, because look at how the disciples respond. They didn't look and say, oh, yeah, okay, they got to get on their knees to go through that little door there in Jerusalem. That's not what they do. They're, they're amazed. In other words, their mouths are dropping open at what Jesus just said. And they are saying, who can be saved? Again, the idea, the rich people have an in with God. But here's Jesus dispelling that. So if the rich people don't have an in with God, who does? So they're thoroughly confused. But then I love Jesus' answer as we look at the next part of this, verse 27. With man, this is impossible but with God, all things are possible. What we must understand is we have to have dependence on God rather than self. If I come in thinking I can buy my way into the kingdom, I can work my way into the kingdom, I don't have a chance to see eternal life. I have to come as a child I have to come ready to receive what God gives, not saying, I bring all of these things, God, you have to accept me. But I come and I say, I bring nothing. But I receive what you freely give. And I am willing to put aside these things that I want to hold on to, my sin, my wealth, my position, you name it. Rather than holding on to those, I'll have an open hand and God take it away. Use it as you will. I present myself to you and recognize that it's nothing that I do, but it's all what you do. And that's what Jesus brings out so clearly in that 27th verse. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. But then finally we come to the last part of the passage and we see Jesus talk about a heavenly perspective for those who are followers of Christ. Peter gets it. And he says, we have left everything to follow you. And they had. Think about what Peter had left. A business, his boat, his nets, his family, everything to follow Jesus for those three years. He and several others understood what it was to truly follow Jesus. 
But then in verse 29, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Now, when Jesus says this, what is he talking about? Is he saying this is a great investment? That you will get more money if you give up the money that you have in a hundredfold? I'll tell you, Wall Street would be interested in that investment. If you get a hundred times what you give up, you would be seeing people line up if it was talking about material things. All the, the churches would be full. There would be followers of Christ everywhere. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. You know what happens when we give things up for Christ? We find that God replaces it with so much more. I've seen people who have been rejected by their families because they've chosen to follow Christ. But you know what they find? A church body where there are people who love them like mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. I've seen people who have been rejected and lost friends. What do they find when they come into the church body? They make friends with believers that are lasting and long relationships. God replaces what a person might give up and they find so much more than they anticipated. The key is to leave the old behind and to embrace the new. Some people try to play both sides. I'll hold on to these things, but I expect all of these things. Jesus is saying if we give these things up for the gospel, we'll get all of these wonderful things, but notice what else he says. We'll receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions. The Christian life isn't all just friends and fields and homes and all of the enrichment that we get in the body of Christ. Very often there's persecution that accompanies it as well. So Jesus is being very honest about the cost of discipleship. Yes, it will cost you if you follow me. Yes, there are things that will change and that you must give up, but God provides so much more. And then look at the last part of it. Not only do we get all of these things and the persecutions, but the promise of this, in the age to come, eternal life. This is what I like to call the eternal perspective what God is promising is this. While we may suffer the persecution here, there is coming a day where we will find that we have no persecution at all. We have eternal life in the presence of God delivered from all of these things. And that's what we should focus on. That's what we should work toward. That's what we should live for. God wants us to be a people who recognizes the eternal as of so much more importance than the temporal. And yet, what do we do? We so often live for the things that we can see and taste and touch and feel. We need to live for the things that are of faith and that are yet to come. So Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that and then closes with this statement. Look at verse 31. Many who are first will be last and the last first. From our human value system, we inflate people who really shouldn't be inflated in our ideas and in our image. What do you call a man who works 80 hours a week, owns a multi-million dollar business, on his fifth marriage, whose children won't speak to him, and who goes home and drinks himself to sleep every night. Many in the world would call him a success. We'll take the one area of life where maybe he has shown some success, but at what cost? While many in the world will say, hey, he's a first, man. In God's world, he's the last. Then you take the little pastor 
in a small rural church who's been there working for years, decades, and still has just a tiny little congregation of people that he ministers to, but he's been faithful to the word. And he's loved the flock. He's not sure when and if he can retire because the little church couldn't afford to pay him a salary to where he could build a retirement. Many in the world would look at him and say, eh, not much to him. He's the last. God would look at him and say he's a success. He's first. We measure by the external. God measures by the eternal. What is your priority system? What do you value? What do you see of most importance? God wants us to live for that, the eternal. And when we do, our life will show it. May God teach us all to live with that eternal perspective, to embrace him as a child, to not be so self-sufficient, to look forward to eternity and accept the challenges that come with following Christ today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the challenge that it is to us. Help us to be people who live for the eternal. Help us to put aside the things that would draw us away from you, Lord. And let us embrace the things that would cause us to follow you unreservedly. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please stand as we sing our final song, Behold the Lamb, to prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the King. The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember the wounds that heal, the death that brings us life. Pay the price to make us one. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the king The blood that cleanses every stain of sin shed for you. Drink and remember, he drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So we share in this bread of life 
and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of grace around the table of the king and so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. So as we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king What a blessing it is for us as a church body to follow in obedience in this that the Lord has commanded. We would invite you, if you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior, to join with us in this. It's a command for all believers. You don't have to be a member of this church. Just one who has trusted Christ as your Savior for this to have meaning to you. We believe that the elements of the Lord's table symbolize what Jesus did. The bread symbolizes his body, which was broken for us. The cup symbolizes his blood that was shed for us. These are visible reminders of the great cost that Jesus paid for us that we might have eternal life. It's appropriate that we remember the Lord's table after a message that talks about the cost of following him because it's a reminder that he paid a great cost to give us the opportunity 